My name is Ed Goldberg. Welcome to Author, Author, an occasional series of conversations with authors touring through Portland or whom I have reached by phone. My name is Ed Goldberg, and I have the pleasure of speaking with John Mocheri. John, thank you so much for doing this interview. My pleasure, Ed. It's a book. It's The title of the book is For the Love of Music, and it's published by Alfred A. Knopf. And this is a book, uh, your ideas about the, I don't know, is it fair to call it the Western canon of classical music? Yeah, I mean, I, I use that as the center of the book. I think that the larger issue is about how classical music works in people's lives. And one of the phenomena that I've noticed in my 74 years on this planet is that this thing that we sometimes call Western music, and we call it that because the Greeks are the first ones to describe this kind of music. And it's different from other kinds of music, from folk music and from you know Indian music and West African music, because of certain qualities it has in describing things and in, and in affecting people's behavior. So this kind of music, which we call Western music, and it's art music or classical music, is the extended version of it, has really taken over the world. And, you know, in the 60s, people talked about world music. What that basically meant was every other kind of music other than Western music. But really, if you're going to look at the music that has permeated the entire globe, it's this music, it's Western music. And so the book really is about how this music functions in our lives. And it, and it one, gives a certain amount of solace to people who already love it. It also, as, as Stephen Huff, the pianist, said, is a kind of a, a hand-holding moment where I take people and say, you know, just try it, because actually you've been in this world since the day you were born. Because it has this strange impact on people's lives. It travels with you. So whenever you accept it, whenever it comes into your life, it becomes your partner. And that's a really interesting phenomenon because the music itself stays the same in one sense. And so every time you hear it, and every time you come to it again, and it's different, one of the reasons is how different you are now. So it's kind of a mirror of who you are. But on the other side of it, classical music, even though there's you know, a really small number of pieces, see if people are listening to this who are not so sure about classical music, the actual core of it, you know, lasts about 150 years, and 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 it's not all that a lot, not that many composers really, and not that many pieces. But it's always it's always modern because it has to be performed. So there are new interpreters playing it, and you're hearing it again. So on the one hand, it's per, it's part of your life, and it's always a part of the discovery journey of our lives. A while ago, I gave a couple of talks on the origins of Western classical music, and I couldn't come up with the name of the first Homer Erectus who beat on a hollow log and got people up to dance. Uh, but you, you go back to the Greeks, and you talk about the, the modes that the Greeks used. Mm -hmm. And uh, yeah. modes are kind of like scales, aren't they? Yeah, they are scales. They just were, um, they just went down as opposed to up, but they're basically the same thing. You know, we, everybody who sees a piano or has played the piano knows that there's, uh, there are white notes and black notes. And from a note that might be called A to another note that's called A, there are, between the white and black notes, there are 12 half steps. You know, if you use all of them, there are 12. And most scales are eight notes or seven notes to get to the next one. So that means that you skip some of those notes, and different scales skip different notes. And it's actually the space between the notes that carries all the information. 
And that sounds so technical, you know, and so complicated. Like, I can't understand that. I didn't go to music school. But in point of fact, everybody understands that. Everybody, it carries so much information that even if you don't have the jargon for it, you know the difference between major and minor. You know the different modes. You know how they make you feel. You know how they bring out certain imaginary worlds and times. Now, the Greeks, which make this, the reason I, I, I start with the Greeks, but I do go back much earlier. I mean, I do talk about, you know, hitting a log or, or, or blowing into a femur and making a sound that's, an, you know, an early flute. Yes, you do. And yeah. I ask the question, why why did we do that? I'm sorry? No, no, yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I, you, that's exactly right. I, I, I mean, the question, this is really interesting, yeah, right? Yes. Like, why did we do that? I mean... I suspect, and this is one of the things I imagine, because a lot of being a conductor is about imagination. You climb into a piece of music and you kind of imagine what is it saying, what is it telling, what, why does it exist? But I, I kind of imagine that somehow in prehistoric times, when we found the femur of an animal or a conch shell that had been you know, washed up on the shore and the, and the actual animal in it was no longer there, it was dead. And we brought it up to our lips and exhaled into it. There might have been some kind of idea of bringing it back to life with our breath. And what it did is it made a sound. So in a funny way, it did come back to life, just in a different kind of life. And not only did we like doing it, but then we worked for thousands of years to perfect different kinds of sounds out of it because, because we had an idea of an ideal sound. So getting from that femur that someone picked up a thousand years ago, whatever that was, to a flute in 1850 around then, that's a long journey. Why did we do that? So the, the, the book asked the question, I mean, really an unanswerable question is, why humans invented music? And why is it that it's so basic to who we are? So anybody who says, I don't understand music, is really being unfair to him or herself. Because we all understand it, because we invented it, and we invented it for ourselves. We like some of it, we don't like all of it. And that's true of everybody. right? I like to say to people that, you know, if you don't like a certain classical composer, that's fine, because you're in good company of people who love classical music. Because nobody who loves classical music loves everybody. You know, they, they'll go hear, you know, the Mozart, but leave for the Bruckner. Or they don't like the Mozart, but they come for the Wagner. Or they don't like Wagner. <laughs> you know, so it's really, it ha it's a little bit like paint. Like you paint, you can paint the wall and only some walls can take the paint. Otherwise it just bubbles up and just goes to the ground. What takes, what is, what is it in you that means that certain kinds of music speak to you. So already the music is telling you this is something, this is somehow a mirror of who you are. So rejoice in that and rejoice in that journey. So this is about empowerment and about ownership. So it's a, it's a, it's a book about that. And when I was asked to write it, I, I have to say, looking back on it, 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 it did me a great favor because I had to investigate why does music matter to me? Why did it come to me very early? Why is it perfectly okay for it to come to you when you're 40 or 50 years old? After all, one of the things that I discovered in thinking about it is that music, classical music, is a very adult art form. And yeah, little kids can like it and can enjoy the melodies or the development and play the piano. But, but ultimately, it's when you're an adult that you're starting to understand what this music is telling us about the human condition. So it, it can elevate us, it can lower us, it can, it can lead us into war, 
It can it can make us happy. It can it can join us in our sadness. It can do all those things because it is the most human. It's who we are. That's basically how the book ends. Not to spoiler alert, I know, but <laughs> but it's who we are. Music. So that's really the point of the book. Okay. Now, is in that sense, is music unique among the arts? What? It's not like painting. Once you paint something, it's there, and you look at it, and it's that way for the rest of the world. But when, if you're playing a, a, a Mozart trio, that Mozart trio can be reinterpreted in any number of ways. Does that make, does that make it unique among the arts? It's one of the reasons. I mean, there are other interpretive arts like theater. You know, an actor can say to be or not to be, mm-hmm. or to be or not to be. That is the question, or whatever. In other words, so there are certain arts that have to be interpreted. What makes music a really... I mean, totally unique among all the arts and even the interpretive arts as opposed to you know, calligraphy or painting is that it's invisible. The idea that it is invisible. Oh, yeah, you can look at a violinist playing. And, oh, yes, and you can you can use it to accompany a ballet or movie or drama. You can tell stories with it by putting people in costumes and walk around at the stage. But the basic thing is invisible. It's it's controlled vibrations of the air. It can only be perceived through time. Now, this is really a powerful, ambiguous force. And and in that sense, it is unique. Uh, I like to tell the story that in Confucius's time in China, it was not considered an art, but it was part of public administration because it controlled behavior. Napoleon writes about that. He, he writes about how a great piece of music does more to uplift society than any speech or, or sermon. And, and that's one of the reasons why during the 20th century, dictators like Mussolini and Hitler and Stalin wanted to control music, and especially classical music, but all music, because they knew of its power to control how we behave. Mm-hmm. Something you bring up in the book, and I think everybody who knows a little bit about music is aware of this, although maybe not, it may not have the impact on on me that that I, okay, let me, let me back up. The way you stated this had more impact on me than any idea I ever had about this, but even though there were great Italian composers and there were great French composers and there were great Russian composers, what we think of as classical music is basically the art of Germany and Austria. Is, is, that, is that a fair statement? Yeah, it is for instrumental music, for sure. Remember, though, that the influence of Italy on the Germans was, was profound. Uh, Bach, Bach yeah, wrote for Parsifal, yeah. You know, Wagner wrote Parsifal in, in, in Italy, and uh, you know, a lot of composers, or German composers, went to Italy to be inspired by melody. You know, it's a strange thing. I mean, there are cultural... There are cultural achievements that you don't want to sound too racist, but they're, they're the reality of the Italian melody, the idea of melody. Wagner writes about this because Wagner loved Bellini. I mean, he loved conducting the operas of Bellini. That comes as a surprise to people. But early in his career, he was a conductor, and he thought Norma, the opera Norma, was you know, one of the great masterpieces of all time. So in, in the sense of, of long form, long form art music, that tends to be German, Austro-German, whereas the concept of melody, natural, singable melody, seems to emanate more from Italy. After all, the Italians, you know, invented recitative, the, how, did, how, did, 
how to say lots of words fast without mm-hmm. having to speak them is an Italian invention, which then the Germans took on. So we, we also have to be careful here, and this is always important, is that the countries we talk about when we talk about Germany or Austria or Italy were not necessarily countries. You know, there was Prussia and there was the Austro-Hungarian Empire and there was, and, and as Bismarck, I think, said, or might have been Bismarck, said the Italy is a geographical expression because it wasn't really a country and it wasn't a country until the middle of the 19th century because all these different, there were city-states and there were people who controlled it from other countries. After all, um, Mozart, you know, wrote Italian operas, but the whole part of northern Italy was Austrian at one point. So, you know, it's so, so again, we, the truth is, however, that the core of the repertory that we hold dear really does start with two Germans, with Handel and with Bach, who were both born in the same year and had completely different career arcs, whereas Bach lived in northern Germany, was a Lutheran, mostly wrote in a, in, for a small church in Leipzig. And Handel went to Italy, where he learned about to write Italian opera. He wrote for the Catholic Church. He came back and went to London. And then, of course, wrote Italian operas, owned theaters, was extremely wealthy. I mean, he was, you know, Mr. Broadway of his own time. And then when people stopped going to Italian opera, so you have a German writing Italian opera in London. Are you all ready for that? <laughs> and then when the English stopped being so interested in Italian opera, he started writing oratorios, next scene, Messiah, right? And so he kept reinventing himself. Yeah. And he was, you know, as I said, extremely rich. He was a showman. He was world famous, but he was really famous to every person in London. I mean, I talk about that in the book. That's my point was that he wasn't writing for people who went to music school. I mean, if 20,000, you know, 50,000 people in London, you know, flock to a park to hear the dress rehearsal of the Royal Fireworks music, that means that he was he was that famous in an era where, you know, where there were no was no Internet. This is this becomes really kind of fascinating. Yeah, he was an entertainer for sure. That's how you characterize him. Uh, I would like to remind our listeners, I'm speaking with John Malcheri. His last name is spelled M-A-U-C-E-R-I. If it sounds familiar, uh, you you were the conductor of the Hollywood Bowl Orchestra for, what, 200 years or so? About 200 years. Yeah, yeah. something yeah, like, like 20. before they invented them. 16 years, actually. 16, yeah, okay. From 1991 uh, we, for 16 years, yeah. Yeah, well, we yeah, we... In that period of time, there were four million people who came to those concerts. Uh, it was it was really record breaking from the point of view of the number of concerts that I conducted with the Hollywood Bowl Orchestra. But also, we were restoring music that had never been played live, and a lot of that was for refugee composers who wrote for Hollywood. That's kind of ironic because people assume, well, now because film music is played a lot, but in those days. The classics and the new film scores were not being played in concert. So we we started that with, of course, other people. It wasn't just us. But that was really part of what we did. And also, we brought back opera to the bowl, and we brought back dance to the bowl. And for the first time in the bowl's history, we did fully staged musicals. So in addition to all the other things we were playing, this was a, a time tremendous transition. And we made a lot of records, too, which were which I'm very proud of. Yes, they're, they're, they sound wonderful. I'm always reminded that opera is a world where a Japanese woman and an American man are singing to each other in Italian. 
Yes, and you know, I talk about that. There's one part of the book where I, I take the different kinds of classical concerts you can go to, starting from a solo recital uh, and moving up to an opera, um, just so that people have an idea of where their entry point might be. Or, mind you, if they like one kind of it, they go to the, you know their, their local orchestra concerts, they may not think of going to a chamber music concert because they think it might be boring. I try to disabuse people of that because, you know, when you're up close to a string quartet, you're seeing things and experiencing things in a visceral level that you sometimes really don't get in a big concert hall. When we talk about opera, part of what makes opera so incredibly interesting, it's so messy, it's so big, it's so cumbersome, it's so inefficient. It's fundamental to who we are. If we think music is fundamentally human, we also have this fundamental desire to tell our stories in ritual ways, whether that's religious stories, whether that's historical, passing on history. We tend to want to tell those stories by people singing, putting costumes on, moving in a kind of unnatural, controlled way. And, and we, the public, I'm not talking about we, the performers, we, the public, really want to sit in the dark facing those people and having that experience. We know that the Greek dramas were sung. And that mm -hmm. was the inspiration for opera in the first place. I mean, people thought that the Greek plays were spoken. But once it was ascertained that they were sung and that the actors were improvising based on the meter of the poetry, that would determine the, the mode and the whatever accompaniment would be improvised with them. It's kind of pre-jazz Yes. I mean, I think they'd be really kind of fun to try to do some, and some have actually tried to do that a Greek play, you know, do Oedipus or Colonus or whatever, do uh, uh, whatever, doesn't matter, Electra, and, and actually have actors improvise it, you know, jazz actors and, and jazz musicians play the parts and have them, you know, invented by having the words and creating, creating uh, music drama. So music drama is something that is almost redundant because drama was always musicalized. And even in the, the time period when there seemingly was no music, maybe the plays that we, that we think of from the 19th century, we tend to forget that in the great plays, in the great theaters, there was always an orchestra in the pit. I mean, A Midsummer Night's Dream by Mendelssohn is actually a complemental music to a fully staged version of the play was not meant for the concert hall. It was meant for the theater, at least all the incidental music for it. So, I mean, the same thing, Tchaikovsky wrote a Hamlet. Sibelius, one of the last pieces he wrote, was The Tempest. It's not just Shakespeare either, because Beethoven wrote music for Goethe's play Egmont. So the audience came in. There was an orchestra in the pit. There was an overture. Curtain went up. There was underscoring. There mm -hmm. was underscoring. There was melodramas. So... So before there were movie scores, there were music. There was music for straight plays. So this is all part of who we are. So when you get to opera, as you said, you know, as a Japanese person is singing to an American person in Italian, it's not real, but it's super real. It's beyond real. It's it's something that's telling a story. And you know, if if we look at a theorist, a, a scientific theorist like Carl Jung, who you know early student of, of Freud who, who parted with him and had a, a rather unique and interesting attitude toward the arts. When you go to Madame Butterfly, when you go to Don Giovanni, 
actually all of those different singers are representing a part of who you are. In other words, so I'm watching Madame Butterfly. Again, I'm not talking as a conductor, although as a conductor, I'm certainly aware of this. And so we're all Chocho-san, we're all Pinkerton, we're Suzuki and we're Sharpless. In other words, we have, we have played the part of the friend who warns a friend. We have inadvertently hurt somebody because Pinkerton isn't necessarily a bad guy. He, he doesn't even realize that he's hurt her so much. He just realized, he just was told that the, the way to have sex with this beautiful girl is to theoretically marry her. And so he does, and he does what many soldiers have done for thousands of years. She, on the other hand, believes him. She's naive enough to believe naive enough to believe him. So we've all played both sides of that. Mind you, we don't commit suicide necessarily. We don't. Our, the hurt is a, a different level of hurt, but it's still representing our capacity to be hurt and to hurt. It it represents our capacity to be a loving friend who still is in, unable to stop some bad thing happening. Again, in Tristan and Isolde, it's the same thing. In, this, in the, that opera, you've got Tristan and Courvenal are the people who are the most affectionate. You've got Isolde and Brangena. They're always hugging each other. Read the libretto. When we first see Tristan, he's standing at the prow of the ship, and, and there is Courvenal wrapped around his feet, taking a nap. I mean, so Wagner sets up these two same sex of very close relations. I'm not saying they were sexual relations, but they're, they're about as strong uh, a friendship and bonding as you can possibly imagine. And then Isolde and Tristan are like uh, cosmic forces. I mean, their, their relationship is not particularly sexual. It's something that can't be stopped. It's, it's like lightning. It's like you know, the earth and the sky. It's like the sea. And, and the two people who love them can only hug them, can only hope. So in that sense, we are all part of every character on the stage. So we don't really care if, if Chocho San is, is a 40-year-old African-American. When we saw Leontine Price sing Chocho San, nobody laughed when, when she said Queen Di Channi. I mean, no 15-year-old girl can, can sing that role. And Puccini didn't necessarily expect that. But he did want us to know that that character is 15 years old. She's an adult, but she's very, very young. And so from that point of view, we, we relate to when we might have been 15 or 14 or 16 and that's the important thing, because the voice and the music is actually carrying on the story. And yeah, we put costumes on people and we move them around, and that's part of the pretend. But the part that's real is, is the music, and that's the thing that makes that eternal. I have a couple of questions that, uh, questions that I've had for a long time, and after reading your book, I thought you might be a good go-to guy for, for a couple of these things. Has classical music ossified? Do you know what I'm talking about? Is it, is it so set in stone sure. that there's no hope for the edges? There's no hope for bleeding out the at, at the edges and and bringing in new uh, new ideas. There's always hope. It's just that the creativity moves to different places. the The book after this book, I mean, this this book for the love of music, which is kind of expands what the first book, which is Meisters and Their Music, was, which was two years ago. The next book is called Music in the Century of War, and it's about reclaiming the 20th century. The music that you're looking for to feed the repertory, 
Because you say, because de facto, the repertory, the new, the repertory that everybody in the world wants to hear stops around 1930, mm-hmm. 1920. Maybe there's an example from 1940. You know, uh, you can always say, well, there's this. Well, yes, there's Shostakovich V from the late 1930s. But really, what, when we talk about the repertory, it does seem to have stopped. Now, you say ossified. Well, on the one hand, as I said earlier, it never ossifies because it requires living people to interpret it. So there's always going to be another conductor, there's always going to be another harpsichordist, a new violinist, a singer, who's going to excite you and going to bring something new to it, something from our time, whatever time that time is. So there's that. Now, the other thing about the repertory has to do with the snobbery and with the, the much of what happened in the 20th century, because you have to remember that music in the 20th century was a weapon and a target for the three global wars. World War One, World War Two, and the Cold War. So these are complicated issues. The composers who wanted to continue writing great, soaring, melodic, dramatic music were not being played in the concert halls in, in, after World War Two. Up to World War Two, it was possible to still be writing greats, you know, just so you have Prokofiev Cinderella or his Symphony Number no. Five. And, and Shostakovich is still writing, and there are some others. But for the most part, something changes. And so any composer who is writing a big melody or has that capacity is not being performed and not being commissioned. Rather, those composers go to the world of the cinema. So you have Ennio Morricone, who's in his 90s now, who can write 12-tone music and can write as, as much atonal and non-tonal music as anybody would want. In fact, he has. But what everyone wants to hear is his, is his music for the mission and for Once Upon a Time in America or even the, his Academy Award-winning score to The Hateful Eight from two years ago. The composers who are writing for orchestra, have, who have the greatest freedom, are the composers who write, believe it or not, for commercial cinema. And that sounds really crazy because we say, well, wait a minute, they're the ones who are the most constricted. But that turns out not to be true. The, the, the great constriction had to do with an intellectual university official avant-garde. And, and so as long as that is our criterion, our overall criterion is that the music be edgy, be challenging, all the words people use for basically complex and generally unpleasant and incomprehensible. Those are, those are the negative words, but the words that are used that are said, you know, are about, about, this other way of looking at it, a pro- progress. But really, that music, most of that music is based on theories from 1909. I mean, this, that avant-garde is, a, is older than most other forms that we can think of. But yet, that still pervades critical thought. It pervades how orchestras view classical music. What is the appropriate music for our time? So, Again, you, you look at someone like Nino Rota, who composed many operas. We don't play them because they're tonal, but yet everybody loves his score to The Godfather and to Romeo and Juliet. He was fully trained. Not only was he trained in, in Italy, but he was trained at the Curtis Institute in Philadelphia. These composers, who we've all been told were hacks of some kind, turned out to have all been fully trained in the greatest conservatories of the world. And in order to create this impression that new music has to be opaque and difficult to understand. And that's unfortunate. 
the composers who want to write, who have this lyrical gift and have this ability, whether that's Howard Shore and Danny Elfman, Alexandra Desplat, Ramin Javadi, who wrote Game of Thrones, these are people who all studied music, who all carry on the traditions. So you just maybe won't hear them in your concert hall. You will have to hear them in, you know, other places and soundtracks. I think that will change, by the way. I think that will change. It's uh, Right now, film music tends to be contemporary film music and played live to picture, which is a phenomenon that I believe is a temporary phenomenon. I think it's, I think it's exciting. I'm glad it's happening. And I think that orchestras mostly program it to make money. And, and they don't take it very seriously. We need to get to the next step where music by Nicholas Roja and Eric Korngold and, and uh, others of that time, Waxman, and then Bernard Herrmann and Jerry, Jerry Goldsmith and Elmer Bernstein. These are composers who are so enormously talented, and many of them wrote concert works. We need to enfold that into our repertory. So I think that will change. Not to personalize this too much, but you and I share a, a, a common phenomenon, and that is the Captain Video and the theme music for Captain mm-hmm. Video, which is from The Flying Dutchman by Wagner. Yes. And I'm actually a couple of years older than you, and I, I remember the radio programs like The Shadow, where the, the theme song was the Rue d'Omphal and uh, the Lone Ranger with, uh, of course, the you know the William Tell Overture. But the incidental music was Le Prelude. The incidental music was Dvorak's Ninth Symphony. It was quite mm-hmm. amazing that you could hear all this stuff on the radio. And when I found out that these were actual pieces and had actual titles, which was in my 20s, I ran out and bought these records, not just for the sake of nostalgia, but because I wanted to hear them as concert pieces instead of just incidental music for Ohio Silver Away. Well, that's that's right. And, you know, uh, silent movies used to do that, too, of course, for a while, because music was always played in the cinema. Silent movies were never silent. There was always someone playing. But only at a certain point did composers start writing original music. And the same thing was true for television. At first, public domain material was being played. Uh, Somebody at the Dumont Television Network had to come up with the theme music for Captain Video. What would sound you know, powerful and and mysterious and heroic. And that person chose the overture to the Flying Dutchman. But here's the other thing. If If you go to Star Wars, the Star Wars world, where, you know, most of the population of the world was born into Star Wars, you know, it's 42 years old, 43 years old. I remember hearing that in the summer, in the spring of 1960, 77, I guess, or 76, whatever year was, 77. And I didn't know where all of it came from, what inspired John, because John was given the task of imitating the temporary track that was used that Steven Spielberg and George Lucas used to watch the movie. So the beginning is very much, I suppose, King's Row of Corngold. But then in the next scene, when we're, you know, on a desert planet, we're hearing the music of the second, opening the second section of, of the Rite of Spring. And then we're also hearing the Love of Three Oranges marches. We're also hearing William Walton for the throne room. And so John, who is a brilliant mimic, and, and he's not only a, a mimic, but he also, you know, like an amoeba, he eats it and makes it part of his own body, <laughs> his own musical body. And, and so he absorbs the influence and then writes his own music. So here's the key, by the way. I believe this is the key. 
to to younger people entering into classical music. Yes, they're probably not hearing the Flying Dutchman, but they are probably hearing the Ride of the Valkyrie, by the way. And of course, they know the the Wedding March from Lohengrin. I mean, there are certain certain classical pieces that are just so fundamental that people aren't even aware that it's in the water system and it's in the air we breathe. There was a young man who works at, at, at mailboxes, et cetera, here in New York City where we have our packages delivered. And an older friend brought him to the opera to see Carmen. And he, I asked him how it was. And he said, I was really surprised because I knew all the songs, he said. Mm-hmm. Uh, that is really sweet. He referred to them as songs. Why not? They are. And um, he knew he knew the Toreador song, and he knew the Habanera, and he, so really, John Williams, in his own way, is is the the doorway. He, you know, that's the you pass through that doorway to Wagner and Strauss and Mahler, and not to mention how he's taken more contemporary influences like spectral music, which he uses in Close Encounters, or minimalism, which he uses in AI, as well as the fact that he was a jazz musician. He is a, a cornucopia of world, of, of Western music, and, and everyone knows who he is. And everybody now, because of his age and because he's just managed to stay out there on such a high level, he is he is one of the most important, certainly maybe the most important living composer in the world. And and as shocking as that might be for some people, they ought to just settle on down and listen to what he's written because it is astounding. I mean, the score to AI alone, you get that get that CD, play it from beginning to end, and it's just astounding music, astounding music. I mean, even if you don't know the movie, and you, in fact, there's no particular reason you should know the movie in order to pre- appreciate the music. The production of the of the soundtrack album, which is out of order from the movie, it's 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 produced as if it were a large tone poem. is quite quite extraordinary. Really wonderful music. I've been speaking with John Malcheri. His title of his book is "For the Love of Music," published by Alfred A. Knopf. And it has been wonderful speaking with you. Please let me know when the next book is coming out. We'll talk again. Okay, thank you so much. Have a good afternoon. You too. You've been listening to Author, Author, produced at the studios of All Classical KQAC-FM in Portland. My name is Ed Goldberg. You can find these programs at our website, allclassical.org slash author. Thank you for listening, and I'll be back soon.